Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Hebrews in chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We have been working our way through the book of Hebrews. Past three weeks we were in Hebrews chapter 7. We are now in Hebrews chapter 8. And last week um, we spent some time talking about how Jesus as our priest is the mediator or the guarantor of a new covenant. And hopefully, kids, you remember a little bit about what a covenant is. We'll talk about a covenant again today, a very important covenant, even the most important covenant that our God has given to us, what is the covenant that is called the new covenant. And uh, one theologian, I believe he was Dutch, Gerhardus Voss, uh, called a the book of Hebrews, the epistle or the letter of the covenant, because this beautiful letter that we have is one of the clearest places in Scripture where we see um, information, uh, teaching about the nature of God's covenant with his people, his new covenant with his people, and that takes its full focus here in Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to read through the entire chapter today. Um, and we'll hear about God's covenant with his people. So if you would, out of adoration and respect for God's word, please join me in standing as we read through these 13 verses. This is Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Here now, God's holy and inspired word. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to give gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless... There would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do speak to us through your word. We do thank you that you even speak to us through the weakness of the preached word. 
I pray that you would be pleased to make your power perfect, even through the weakness of the proclamation of the gospel. May we not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power unto salvation for all who believe. And I pray, Father, that you would turn our hearts to you this morning as we go through this passage and teach us of this glorious covenant that you have made to us in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. A good public speaker will never allow his audience to lose sight of the main point of his message. In the course of, a, of communicating the message, there are lots of different ways that an audience can drive home his point, lots of different rabbit trails that can be helpful in explaining things, Stories are a powerful way of engaging an audience and making an analogy. Illustrations are helpful. And of course, having a good sound arguments to back up and substantiate the main point are essential. But it is always, a, always key that the speaker never let their speaker or their, their audience lose sight of the main point that he is trying to drive home. People cannot get lost on the side roads on the way to their destination. And we've been saying that this book of Hebrews is in many ways a sermon that is given to us in the form of a letter. And this preacher going through this sermon has um, sought to encourage God's people in their perseverance unto glory by fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a lot that we are thrown at, or that is thrown at us in this letter. Uh, some of it admittedly difficult for us to understand. Even the author admits that a few chapters before our chapter today. And recently he's been talking about the, the priestly nature of Jesus Christ and the importance of his priesthood. But when we come to this chapter, at the beginning of chapter 8, it's almost as if our author wants to look us full in the face and say, look at me, the point that, of what we were saying is this. He wants to get our attention because we can get lost in the details, and he wants us to focus on his point right here. And the point he wants to make is that we have a high priest who is in heaven. We have a high priest who is in heaven. Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest, and he is in heaven. Now, we have heard a lot about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, but his focus today is to drive home the, the point that he is in heaven, his heavenly placement, and, the, and why that is so essential for us as we persevere in our faith. And the, the way he does that is by saying, because he is in heaven, we know he has a better ministry. And that better ministry makes him a mediator of a better covenant. And that better covenant is the surety of our hope. It is the solid ground of our hope that we will persevere unto the end. And so it's those two points that 
he speaks of. The better ministry and the better covenant. That's how we're going to look at this passage. Jesus has been given a better ministry and he is now a mediator of a better covenant. So first he's, he's got a better ministry. And, that, and, and he says that right there in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. So what is so great about this ministry that he has been given? What is the point he's trying to convey to us? Well, there's three things. It's his placement, his posture, and his purpose of this ministry. First is the placement. Jesus Christ as our priest is in the true tent, he says. The true tent. He is not on earth. He is a priest who is ministering in heaven. Now, the old covenant, the old ministry, the former priests, they ministered in the tabernacle on earth. And what our author makes clear is that that tabernacle, that earthly tabernacle, was a mere shadow, says verse 5, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, if you read through the book of Exodus once you get past the law in chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are, and you get past uh, up to chapter 25, what you are met with is a long section from chapter 25 until the end that talks about how Moses was to instruct the Israelites to build the tabernacle. Instructions about all sorts of things in very minute detail. Um, they were given instructions about dimensions. You read about cubits, which is from the elbow to the fingertip. You hear about spans, which is from fingertip to fingertip. They also talk about um, all sorts of different materials. You read over and over about blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. You hear about tanned ram skins and uh, sheep skins. You hear about metals, gold and silver and bronze. You hear about oils and spices. You hear about precious stones for the, the priestly garments, and you hear about acacia wood, all these prescriptions for the materials to be used. And then you hear about all sorts of furniture that they need to build, the, the table and the lampstand and the wash basin and the altar and the Ark of the Covenant, all these different things, these uh, prescriptions. But there's this refrain that is three times throughout that extended passage where the Lord says to Moses, see to it that they construct everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So when Moses was on Mount Sinai visiting with the Lord, the Lord showed him a vision of the heavenly tabernacle. He gave him a vision of it, but he also gave him the blueprints of it. Because the Lord would dwell with his people, but he would dwell with his people in a copy, a replica of his heavenly abode. It would be a home of his choosing. And so that's what they built. But what our author says is that, verse 2, Jesus is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Jesus, having gone into the heavenly places, is now in not the copy, the replica, the shadow, but the reality in God's very presence. So he's in a better placement, but he's also got a better posture. 
We've mentioned this many times, but the only person that could go into God's presence where the Ark of the Covenant was, was the high priest. And he could only go one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. But when he went in, he was faced with the Ark of the Covenant, which on top of it had the mercy seat. But this high priest could not sit on the mercy seat. That was God's seat. He had to stand in God's presence. He was not permitted to sit because he stood because he was continually offering sacrifices year after year. But Jesus Christ, having entered into the true tent, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. His once perfect sacrifice completed all sacrifices, and he has sat down even on the mercy seat at the right hand of the Father. So he is, has a better posture, but also he has a better purpose. Verse 8 or 6 says that he's obtained a ministry that's as much more excellent than the old, old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. The former priests mediated the former covenant. Jesus has been given this ministry of this eternal covenant, this new covenant, this better covenant. The former priests was never intended to be permanent. It was always temporary. It was, it was marred by being weak and useless. But we are now ministered by the Lord Jesus Christ as our priest in this eternal and perfect covenant. It is a much more excellent ministry as the covenant is more excellent than the former. So he's got a better ministry and he's mediating a better covenant. Now, kids, again, a covenant is a fancy term which means the terms or the way that we relate to God. God had established covenants throughout Scripture where God said this is how we interact with him. And we've mentioned this before, but God made a lot of different covenants throughout Scripture. There was a covenant with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and now this new covenant. And yet our author really just talks about two covenants. He talks about the first covenant and the second covenant or the former covenant and the new covenant, or one that is, uh, the former one is old and becoming obsolete. The covenant that he's referring to is the covenant that God established through Moses, this covenant of law, this covenant that established the former priesthood. And what we need to see is that this new covenant that we have been given is so much greater in Jesus Christ. It is much more excellent, he says. And he really gives two reasons why it's much more excellent. First, because it's not like the former one. And secondly, because it has been established with better promises. So let's look at those two things. First, he says, it's not, he says, um, verse 8, he finds fault with the former covenant when he says, behold, the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant Verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. So what was wrong with that former covenant? What was wrong with that covenant? It wasn't, it wasn't 
because God was not gracious in the former covenant. See what verse 9 says. He says, It's not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of of the land of Egypt. God was very gracious. He heard their cries. He condescended to deliver them out of Egypt, out of their slavery. It was very gracious um, on God's part. And it wasn't that it didn't have a gracious intent Throughout God's covenant, he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. The intent was a fellowship and a union forever with God. That, that wasn't the problem. It wasn't the gracious intent. The, the issue was that the law was weak and useless in perfecting us. The problem was with us. Like the law passage that we heard from Galatians chapter 3, cursed be everyone who relies on the works of the law. Um, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the law um, was made, uh, it, was our, it was weakened by the flesh, by our flesh. Our sin made us unable to keep that law. Our God said, do this and live. I will be your God and you will be my people if you keep this law. And that's what he says here in this passage. He says, you know, it's not like that covenant for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. We read that new covenant passage from Jeremiah chapter 31. At the beginning, beginning of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah speaks to the people of Israel and Judah and says that they had been unfaithful to him and he had he had been their husband and yet they had broken faith and so he says because they broke faith with me because they rebelled against me because they pursued other gods therefore he wrote her a certificate of divorce he they broke the covenant so he ended it they showed no concern for him he showed no concern for them. And yet in the midst of that rebellion, in the midst of that spiritual adultery, God's love is so matchless and so boundless and so eternal and so profound and so unbreakable, so steadfast and so strong that in the midst of that rebellion, God said, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. A new covenant, not like that covenant that they would not continue in. I'm going to make a new covenant that is built on better promises. Not a promise of do this and live, but promises where the bridegroom could fulfill the terms of the promise, the the terms of the covenant, so that the bride could be his forever and ever. Fulfill the terms where the bride could not, where he would quiet her with his love and adorn her with beauty and lavish on her his joyous love forever and ever, where he could secure the covenant by himself. And that's what this new covenant is. That's why it's so much better with better promises, he says. 
If we look at this passage when he talks about these promises, we see three promises, three beautiful promises that are ours. But we need to look at them closely because we, we overlook it. And, and we are on this side of the new covenant that we have lost sight of what is so beautiful about each one of these promises. And we'll see each one of these promises actually has two parts. So we'll take them one, one at a time. The first promise that he makes is he says, um, Verse 10, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So the the law was in effect in both the old covenant and the new covenant. God's law never changed. But the way the law interacts with God's people was very different. He is promising, promising the Spirit's transforming work of his people. The law was active, but the, 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 the former covenant said, here is my law, do this and live. The new covenant says, I will make you alive so that you can do this. This is what I am promising to do for you. He says two things. He says, I will put my laws into their minds. He's going to implant his law. He's going to give spiritual understanding so that we recognize God's law. We understand God's law. But also, I'm going to write it on their hearts. So God had formerly written his law on tablets of stone with his own finger the Old Testament talks about us having hearts of stone. And he said that when this new covenant comes, I will take out this heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. And what he's promising is now that with this heart of flesh, with that same finger that wrote that law on those tablets, he's now writing them on our hearts. Because obedience to God's law is not just a mere, it's not merely understanding it. It's embracing it because it is God's law. Loving it and desiring to obey it. To seek to fulfill this. And beloved, this is a covenantal promise in Jesus Christ. He is promising that we will understand his will and that we will grow in our obedience and love to it. A covenantal promise. And if you're in Jesus Christ, I would suspect two things when it comes to God's law. For one thing, um, you uh, are aware of God's demands for you, and you're aware of lingering sin within your own heart, and you may even have certain sins which you are particularly struggling with, and you may doubt that the Lord is actually working in your heart. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about COVID and whether um, what's going to be the end state with COVID, like is it going to be fully eradicated or is it going to become endemic, like just part of our seasonal sicknesses. And beloved, what we need to understand is that with this covenantal promise, God will eradicate the sin from our hearts, but only when we are in his presence forever. In this life, we will always have some lingering remnant of sin. 
But God promises that we will grow in grace. You need to cast aside those doubts that God is working in your life. Because change is slow, and it's hard to see that change. And that's the second thing that I would suspect, is that if you look back in your life, say five years, ten years, and you and consider what you understood, your heart towards the Lord, you can more clearly see that change. It's like when you plant a seed in the ground. If you water it and you sit out there you know, for an hour, you're not going to see a whole lot of change. And even if you come every single day, but let's say you come every week or every month, you're going to see that, that plant sprout and flower and bear fruit. And the same thing with our hearts, beloved, is that the Lord is at work, but we don't always see it on a day-to-day basis. God promises that he will work in us. He will transform his people by his spirit. So that's one glorious promise is that transformation of his people. The second is actually the third promise that he gives in verse 13, but is foundational for the final promise. And that is, he says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now, God has always been merciful, and he has always reserved the right to forgive sins. In Exodus 34, when the Lord said, show me your glory, the Lord declared himself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That was always part of God's character, but God never promised to do it. He never promised. Read through the Old Testament. He never promised that he would. You hear Moses pleading, Lord, please forgive them for their iniquities. You hear David say, take not your Holy Spirit from me. God did on occasion forgive sin. He was forgiving and gracious. There was, um, but there were times where he did not. And there's actually two parts to this promise. He says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, so I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And that language of remembering does not necessarily mean a mental decision. Remembering means taking action based upon something that had happened before. So you see this for good or or for bad in a number of different situations in Scripture. In Acts chapter 10, when the angel appears to Cornelius the centurion, he says, the Lord has remembered your prayers and your alms. He was remembering for a good sake. In the book of Revelation, uh, the, the story says that the Lord will remember the iniquities of Babylon the Great. And... But what he's saying is that he's going to remember our sins no more. And, and maybe one, and there are times actually in, in the Old Testament where God forgave their sins but re, still remembered their sins. You, you, you saw that most notably in the time where the, the, the spies went into the promised land. They came back. The people rebelled. They refused to obey. And the Lord said, I am not going to let them go into the promised rest. They will, they will die in this wilderness. And afterwards, the people had heartfelt confession. We have sinned. They took acts of repentance. 
We will go into the promised land and, and attack. And God had told, or Moses had asked God, please forgive them. And he says, I do indeed forgive them. And after he had said that, he began a plague to wipe them out. He remembered their sins. He let them die in the wilderness. But beloved, the promise that is ours in Jesus Christ is that our sins are forgiven and he will remember them no more. He will not take action on the sins that you have committed because he is remembering the sacrifice that his son made on your behalf. And he remembers that and takes action by granting you forgiveness forever. And even when you stand up before the judgment seat of Christ, should Satan himself, the accuser of man, stand there and say, but Lord, remember all these things, whether they were sins done that were deliberate or unintentional, whether they were known by other people or known only to you and the Lord, our God will say, I have forgiven, I promised to forgive this, and I remember that sin no more. It is a sure promise. But the third and the greatest promise is the second one that is listed there in verse 10 at the very end. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his neighbor and brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Beloved, we were meant for perfect fellowship and union with our God. And the former covenant promised that very thing, if we would only be perfect, if we would only keep that covenant. But God said, they did not continue in that covenant, and so I showed no concern. I gave them a certificate of divorce. But this better promise is, I will be their God. They shall be my people. And this is possible because of the other two promises. Because he forgives our sins and remembers them no more, we are holy in his sight but also because he has written the law, his laws into our hearts and put them into our minds. He is making us fit to be in his presence forever and ever. He is conforming us in mind and in heart and in purity forever and ever. And if this sounds at all like you hear the echoes of a marriage covenant, a, that's, that's intentional beloved, because our, our, our marriages, our human marriage, are there to reflect the love that God has for his church. And the former covenant said this, if you are my perfect wife, I will love you forever. But if you are adulterous, I will cut you off. But in love, he made himself like his bride, he sent his son to be, make, be made like his bride. He entered into her, her world 
He fulfilled the terms of that covenant for her where she could not, and he paid the ransom for her. So that now the covenant is, accept my love for you. The love that I expressed by laying down my life on your behalf, and I will be your husband forever. I will draw you near to me in heart and mind every day of your life for all eternity. <laughs> I came to give you joy and joy to the com- that your joy would be complete and you will have it. Not do this, if you do this, then I will be yours, but I will, I have done these things so that you shall be mine and I will be yours. Beloved, the result is a unity of heart and mind with our great God. So that this verse 11, this, you'll hear the loving cry of a faithful bride, a faithful wife who says, I know him. He is my husband. He is my Lord for all eternity. And beloved, because our Savior Jesus Christ is in heaven, in the true tent, we know that this was God's intent from the very beginning. This was his purpose. Not a temporary thing, but an eternal thing. Those former covenants, those former sacrifices, all that was pointing ahead to this reality. God saved the best, the perfect, the eternal, the glorious for his son Jesus Christ so that all of our rejoicing would be in God himself. And beloved, the terms of this covenant, the terms for you and me, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That means believe in the promises that God extends to us because of the ministry, the better ministry of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Believe in those. Believe in Christ as our mediator who ministers on our behalf and remain in him and draw near to our God in him. He is the one through whom we receive these blessings. We draw near in him. And so, beloved, we have been given this new covenant with better promises. And this new covenant is the only hope that you and I have that we shall persevere to the end. And it is a certain hope, a certain hope, because God himself has done everything for you and for me. He has secured our entrance into his presence. He has secured our holiness. He has secured our obedience. And we must cling to Christ. We must draw near to him. It is a sure hope because God has promised these things and God is always faithful. And so, beloved, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. We must hold fast to these promises in him because they are ours. God has promised to prepare you for glory. He will be our God and we will be his people. It is a certainty. He will surely do it because he is faithful. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these 
amazing promises which are ours. Thank you that you have been gracious enough to love us so much that you would promise these things at the price of your own son. Help us to walk in the surety that these promises are truly ours. Would you do these things that you've promised? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.